Governor Kristi Noem lays out the case for South Dakota to the American people. From SDPB Radio, it's Wednesday, September 13th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, journalist Seth Tupper joins us for our weekly look at state politics. We'll talk about Governor Noem's speech at the Monumental Leaders Rally, and we'll dive deeper into the moment those Trump Noem campaign signs came out for the cameras. Is the world vulnerable to a mustard gas attack? A South Dakota scientist has published research that explores a possible neutralizing agent. Plus, we'll explore a meditative American road trip in the movie The Unknown Country. Filmmaker Marissa Maltz joins us and we'll preview the upcoming Latino festival in Uptown Sioux Falls. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Farmers union members from across the country are gathering in Washington, D.C. to discuss their needs with lawmakers, and that includes members of the South Dakota Farmers Union. But South Dakota farmers and ranchers spoke with their representatives about the 2023 Farm Bill all this week. Wayne Soren is vice president of the South Dakota Farmers Union and is a crop and cattle farmer from Lake Preston. He found a hopefully quiet spot in D.C. to join us on the phone. Wayne, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your just your schedule and the amount of advocacy and conversation that you've uh, policy conversation you've really packed into this trip. Well, I'll tell you, it's been very very busy. We uh, we met with the uh, USDA uh, for about three hours, and then we went up uh, to Capitol Hill and we met with uh, uh, representatives of the um, uh, Senate and House Ag committees and heard their, their uh, uh, rendition of the farm bill. And then we started in and started up on, uh, up on the hill to uh, talk with actual legislators or at least their, rep- their ag representatives. Uh, we had five um, visits that we had to make. And uh, so, it, yeah, we packed a lot into two or three days here. Tell me some of the main things that you wanted to be heard from South Dakota producers. What message are you bringing to Washington? Well, I think the, the main message, is, as a lot of the fly-in has been about, is the Farm Bill. Um, I guess that, that was one of the things that I was most disappointed in, is that um, there just didn't seem to be a lot of urgency about the Farm Bill. And so one of the things that we've, we've been telling a lot of these legislators is that listen? We're we're just about ready to go into harvest. Some of us are, have started harvesting here uh, in South Dakota, and and that's when during harvest is kind of when we're starting to figure out. Well, let's see, what are we going to do for next year? And if and if we're not real sure exactly what the farm bill is going to look like, um, it it makes those decisions even that much more difficult. And so um, I guess I'm disappointed that they didn't see the urgency of the farm bill, um, and but. Now it sounds more like that they're just going to make an extension of it for for about a year, which I don't think is the right right deal. I mean, this is they've had five years to figure out that a farm bill is coming, so you know it's it's not something that snuck up on them. But uh, so then, being that they're just going to put an extension into it, then that that's when we were starting to advocate for uh, the right to. Uh, repair our own um, machines and uh, the, the label our beef with with cool 
And um, we, we talked about alternative fuels, and we talked about um, r- rural child care and uh, rural health care and broadband. And so you can see that the, the Farm Bill encompasses a lot of things that would help South Dakota and rural, rural South Dakota uh, in general. And, and hopefully we can get some of these um, legislators to understand some of the issues that we have out here in the, in the countryside. So do you feel like you're coming back with uh, the news is nothing changes for a year? In in general, that that would be the case, yeah. What, what we've had for the last five years, uh, it appears that that's what we're going to have for one more year. Uh, and, and so that means that next year we have to come back out here and, and, and do this all over again to try to get a five-year farm bill. And, uh, and and try to get some of the initiatives that we've been um, advocating into that farm bill. Tell me a little bit to help people understand an example, perhaps, that's directly related to harvest and planning next year's plant, that um, it would be impactful if Congress moved more swiftly on a new farm bill. Well, at, during harvest, that's that's when you're you're checking out the yields and you're checking out your fields and and you're thinking ahead, and, and how much is fertilizer for next year? Can I can I put some fertilizer on for for corn if 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 that's the the crop that I want to put in? And 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 as as we're going through harvest, of course, that's when you're you're identifying which varieties of seed and soybeans. Well, this one worked really well on my property. This one didn't very well, and so I probably don't want to do that one again. So. Um, we're, we're making decisions all the time as we're right. combining, trying to make mental, mental notes of where we are and what we're doing and, and what, what it looks like out there. And, and granted, this has been kind of an unusual year. It, it seems like um, a lot of people have been very, very dry, but uh, there's been a few people that if they got under a thunderstorm, holy moly, they got 15 or 16 inches of rain in, in four or five hours. So yeah. it's... Uh, it, it, it's kind of a, a kind of an anomaly, but yet an anomaly that is a constant. It's it's just that's the way Mother Nature is. We just don't know from year to year, and so you you got to take all those factors in when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do for the next year. Is there a policy that you would like to see? I asked you, a Senator John Thune, about this when we talked about the Farm Bill, which was, you know. Um, an understanding from Congress that those extreme weather events are going to have big impacts on farmers, you know, as we live in an age of climate change. We're just seeing these extreme events. Like you said, super dry, 15 inches comes at once, for example. I'm not saying that is directly related to climate change. I'm just saying in general, we see these extreme events. Is there a policy that you'd like to see address those and what would it be? Well, I, I and one of the things that we had talked about is that, that we need to instead of having ad hoc disasters, we need to have some kind of correlation. And you're absolutely right. Um, The weather events seem to be more extreme all the time. And and like I said, it it, it seems like it's extreme, but it's the normal. You know, we we, we have to understand that we're going to have that. Maybe we have 100 inches of snow and then it doesn't rain again for two and a half months, you know. <laughs> and so we, we've got to somehow figure out how we can, we as, as farmers and ranchers can survive these extremes 
uh, knowing that they're going to happen, but we don't know what they are or when they're going to happen. And, and that's the big, um, big question mark in the sky, I guess. Yeah. And so that would be, I guess, the, the biggest ask is that we have, have a kind of a permanent disaster um, portion of the farm bill. Well, Wayne Soren is vice president of the South Dakota Farmers Union. He's joining us from Washington, D.C. You can find my interview with U.S. Senator John Thune about the farm bill on our website at sdpb.org slash news. Clearly not the last time we'll have this conversation. More to come. Wayne, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Sulfur mustard, or mustard gas, is a chemical agent weaponized for warfare. It is most well-known for its use during World War I, but civilian populations are still at risk today. Even though the agent has been around for more than a century, there's no treatment for mustard gas exposure. Dr. Rachel Willand-Turnley, an assistant professor at South Dakota State University, co-authored a study looking at a potential neutralizing agent. They join me now from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at South Dakota State University. Dr. Willand-Turnley, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. I am fascinated by this research. Help people understand what the deployment of mustard gas or exposure to sulfur mustard does to humans. Sure. So when humans are exposed to sulfur mustard gas, a number of events can take place. The focus of Dr. Logue's work and that of my own, uh, the other uh, co-PI in the publication was really to offer a treatment option uh, for when people are exposed to sulfur mustard on their skin. So when sulfur mustard touches your skin, it causes what we call vesication. So it damages the skin cells. It causes blistering, things of that nature. And so Brian Logue, another very talented researcher in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, set out well before I joined him on this work to develop basically a therapeutic, a treatment option for the, uh, the side effects that sulfur mustard elicits when it comes into contact with your skin. And what I really brought to the project was this interdisciplinary perspective as an organic chemist and a biochemist to help develop the therapeutic. So give me an idea of where you were starting from. Had there been any progress in researching this kind of therapeutic in the past that you were building upon, or are you starting from scratch? So there are a handful of labs across the country who, as we cited in our work, were interested in solving this problem. Uh, Dr. Logan and myself brought an interesting perspective and viewpoint in that we wanted to develop a therapeutic that would just simply compete with the um, how do I want to say this, with the uh, the sulfur mustard derivative cease that we were working with, so that instead of wanting to react, in other words, with your biomolecules, which ultimately is what leads to damage, we would kind of entice it away to react with our therapeutic, mm. thus avoiding the damaging side effects. It's all about communication and with whom, right? <laughs> I think I learned yeah. that the last time I talked to you. Okay, yeah. so what were some of the conclusions that you found? You made some progress. This work was published. Tell me what the results were. So uh, we identified that we can use a molecule called methimazole and that it just seems to have 
the perfect um, level of reactivity so that, um, so for example, whenever you're considering a therapeutic, you're putting a drug on somebody's skin or in their body, we always want to consider as biochemists and chemists, well, what are the off-target, what off-target reactivity will that therapeutic have? And hopefully we select and we find a therapeutic that does just what we want it to do and doesn't cause further damage. And so uh, we uh, tested a number of scavengers is what we called them. So uh, technically, you know, nucleophiles, but competing scavengers. And we found that methimazole had the right, if you want to say temperament, in which it reacted with the cease and without damaging your skin. All right. Or interacting, presumably, with the, the biomolecules as well. Yeah. I want to talk broadly about um, whether civilian populations are still at risk of mustard gas exposure. And then if this research can help get the therapeutic to people in time, like that's a, a real world application question. Mm -hmm. What do you do you think about that when you're in the lab or is that not your problem to solve? No, that's absolutely the perspective that we're keeping in mind. So. Although I'd love to say that scientists go in their lab and we just fiddle around with whatever strikes our fancy, we definitely <laughs> keep in mind, you know, what's the application of this uh, in today's climate? Uh, and so, yes, this chemical is still being utilized. And the studies that we published on in ACS Bio and MedChem Gold, those are all in, be that's in vitro work. And we're literally preparing to submit a grant to move this work in vivo so that we can offer further insights into its effectiveness in those in vivo models. And the Logue Lab has actually started moving in that direction um, as well. But yeah, so we're keeping this in mind. You know, we're hoping to, uh, you know, really be able to offer this as a treatment option. What's an in vivo model? Is that like a mouse? Or yes. A... Okay, got yep. it. So oh. in vitro, for example, the work in the paper, it was on cells. So cell surface assays and you know, these are cells that were growing in the lab or what we say in culture. Mm -hmm. And when you start moving in vivo, yeah, your, you know, my mouse models, things like that. All right. Well, we're going to put links to your research up on our website. Please Dr. Do. Rachel Willen Charnley is an assistant professor at South Dakota University, South Dakota State University there mm -hmm. in Brookings. And it has <laughs> yeah. been great to talk to you once again. I always enjoy speaking with you. Yeah. Great work coming out of your lab. I appreciate your time. Definitely. Have a good one. You too. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, last Friday, Donald Trump took to the stage in Rapid City at the Monumental Leaders Rally to address his supporters and supporters of the South Dakota Republican Party in South Dakota. Well, Seth Tupper was there. He covered the rally from the press box. He was there during Governor Nome's remarks the former president's remarks, and he heard what the crowd had to say as well. Seth is editor-in-chief of South Dakota Searchlight, and he's with us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Hey, Seth, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, and I'll, I'll offer a slight modification. Instead of a press box, it was really more of a press pen press uh, that pen. we were in, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so you mean you're in chairs and like lay out what that means, like what was the scene like? Where did you have to sit? Well, just a little behind the scenes stuff, you know, when a president or former president comes, it's pretty standard. They make you bring your equipment if you have a camera or a laptop or whatever. You drop it off in the morning and everybody leaves and then the Secret Service does the sweep of the facility and then you come back. So 
um, that's what we did. And, and in the ice arena at the monument, they had it set up uh, on the floor of the arena. They had literally a, a fence, like a crowd barricade set up in a, in a circular uh, area there. And that's where all the press was basically confined. Um, we had some risers there for people that were you know, live streaming or getting photos or whatever, so you could get up and, and get a good shot. And then and then there were some uh, tables and chairs behind that if you wanted to sit and work with your laptop. But basically, yeah, we were penned in a little circle on the center of the floor in the arena, and then the 7,000 or so people who actually attended were, were all around us. All right, so press members of the press from all over the, the country, the world, the state, who did you get to see there? I mean, who, how would you characterize how many you know media outlets were there? Yeah, I didn't count, but I, I would guess maybe there were 20 or so or 25. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I saw later that one of the people I was watching go live during the uh, event was from CNN. And there were people from something called the Right Side Broadcasting Network, which I had never heard of uh, before I attended this, which is a uh, right-leaning uh, you know, media network. Um, they were going live. There were national reporters there uh, from various websites. Of course, there were local reporters and reporters from all over the state and um, so yeah, it was a it was a mix, and it, but uh, you know during campaigns there's always a a crowd of a certain right. number of reporters that gets assigned to follow a candidate, and there were quite a few of those it looked like as well. All right, so let's jump into who wasn't there. <laughs> I'm going to play yeah. a, a clip from Governor Kristi Noem who who uh, gave a speech and introduced the former President Donald Trump. But first, here's Governor Kristi Noem mentioning who's not in the arena. There are many who choose not to be in the arena. Many who take the easy path, who criticize, who don't show up for our party, our country, or our constitutional rights. They don't show up for you when it really matters. They didn't even show up here tonight to welcome a former president of the United States to South Dakota. A president who cared enough to come and support our state Republican Party and our great chairman, John Wick. Yes, maybe it is controversial to be here tonight. Maybe it wasn't convenient, but it is not the critic who counts. Thank all of you for being respectful, for being here for a man who shows up every day for each of us. All right, Seth, give us an idea of who she's talking about there and how significant <laughs> those remarks were. For the crowd, at least. Yeah, Yeah. for, for context, you know, uh, we at South Dakota Searchlight and other media outlets had reported, you know, ahead of the event that um, our congressional delegation, which is all Republicans, Senators John Thune and Mike Rounds and Representative Dusty Johnson, all said they weren't going to attend and said they had scheduling conflicts. And furthermore, uh, you know, Thune and Rounds have endorsed Tim Scott, a senator from South Carolina for president and, and not Trump. Dusty Johnson has said he, he won't endorse anybody. But anyway, so it was known that they wouldn't be there, and, and you got the feeling that a lot of people in the crowd knew that. And earlier in the night, uh, there were a couple of times when videos were being played on a scoreboard as, as, as people were waiting for speakers and that, kinds of thing, that kind of thing. And when the congressional delegation was, was mentioned or, or flashed on the screen, they were booed. And so by the time Gnome came out after that, uh, I took it, and, and and people in the crowd seemed to take it as though she were talking directly about the, the congressional delegation. Yeah. Uh, she never named them by name or said that explicitly, but that was certainly the way uh, uh, people took it, um, which was kind of an extraordinary moment um, for you know a governor from the Republican Party to to I guess indirectly 
criticize uh, three members of Congress from her own party like that. Yeah. I want to jump ahead to uh, the former president and his time at the podium. And this will circle back to what you were saying, if people have that visual image of where you're sitting during these comments. This is kind of a long clip, and you're going to hear a lot of crowd noise. And then I'll ask Seth, like, what's happening during that crowd noise? But here is uh, Donald Trump talking about the size of the crowd um, how how you know celebratory he feels that moment is, and how big this rally is, and then why he says the press is not doing their job to let the world know how big this rally is. So here is um, from the Monumental Leaders Rally a little bit of Donald Trump. I would love it if the press would turn around the cameras and show this incredible. They don't do it. Did you see that? They don't do it. They won't do it. They won't do it because they're told not to do it. Because they want to make it look — they don't want to show crowds like this because nobody has ever gotten crowds like this. Nobody's ever gotten — it's not me, it's all of us. It's our — this is our movement. This isn't my movement. We're sick and tired of what's happened to our country. But they won't do it, even though it's sort of good for them. You know, you show something that's so vibrant. Look at all the people standing over here. The, the, it's just, it's incredible. They just won't do it. I just said something. Would you please, I asked nicely, would you please turn around? You guys go crazy. Everybody up in the back, they're going crazy. Everyone's going crazy. Those cameras, I didn't see one of them even make, a, a, make an effort to turn around. That's why they call it fake news. That's why they call it fake news. So, Seth Tupper, that clip is about two minutes long, uh, and that's not the whole thing. I mean, I made some choices there. to It's a whole uncut two minutes, but there was some before that. There's a little bit after that. Um, what was the context for that for you as far as is the crowd looking at you there? Is the, What did you feel during that moment? Yeah. So as I described before, you know, we, we in the press, I don't know, 20 or 25 people maybe that were there were, were ringed in and by barricades in the center of the floor. And yeah, at, during that time, all 7,000 or so people in the arena were pointing at us, shouting at us, waving their signs and uh, just generally directing their anger at us, um, which was a truly bizarre moment, you know, for many reasons, not the least of which was, you know, to get angry over something about we wouldn't show the crowd size. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I reported that it was 7,000 people there. It's it's an arena. People can kind of understand, you know, what that looks like. And, uh, you know, I was taking pictures of the crowd throughout the night that I that I shared on my on our website, uh, along with other pictures. Just just really bizarre uh, for him to go on about that and for people to be so angry about it, I thought. But, you know, I, di I didn't feel uh, in the moment that I was, you know, in any kind of danger or anything. But but you also do think of, you know, I mean, we all saw what happened on January 6th after Trump 
you know, gave a speech where he riled a lot of people up and, and some of them went and got violent. And so it's something that um, is on your mind, even though maybe you don't feel like you're in any danger. Uh, on, on the other hand, you think, oh, well, you, if you aren't expecting it or aren't ready for it, um, for things to get violent, um, maybe you're, you're a little naive at this point. Did other people who were holding cameras, I mean, you have a, a, a camera to take crowd pictures, but you're not a television, you're not doing a television broadcast. Did those people move their cameras? Were they, were they no, not? No, they didn't. They did not <laughs> yeah. move their cameras. You know, generally, um, everybody in the press pool at that time, there were some looks exchanged, and we just kind of sat there awkwardly um, <laughs> trying to keep a straight face and, and, and just, you know, um, let it roll off our backs. I mean... You know, I mean, those people are there to to capture video of his speech, you know, so they're training their cameras on him. It's just, you know, um, it, it, it was, again, I, I just it was just a bizarre moment. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you really want to get into crowd size, I mean, we could have got into the fact this was in the smaller of the two arenas in the in the Civic Center complex in Rapid City. Uh, this was in the ice arena, which, you know, held about 7000 people not in the much larger new arena that was that was built a few years ago in Rapid City. So, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about crowd size, you can talk <laughs> about that as well. I want to talk about something else because there was another moment that I went back in the cameras and looked for, and that was uh, when the signs behind this, so the cameras that are trained on um, the former president, behind him, people are holding, you know, Trump 2024 signs. They're wearing T-shirts that have his wanted you know, his mugshot wanted for president kind of T-shirts, some T-shirts mocking President Biden in, in a variety of ways. And then there's this moment where these smaller signs get passed around and they say Trump gnome. And I want to play for listeners the exact moment when I saw for the first time on the camera, the first signs come out and Governor Christy Nome has been talking here about, um, it's right after she makes the comment about who's not in the arena, and then she starts talking about the southern border, and then right at this moment, it's really interesting to watch it happen on the screen. These signs start getting passed around, and very quickly she goes into her own sort of credentials for security, and I think this is an interesting sort of vice presidential moment. Take a listen. I trust President Trump to use our military only when it's in America's best interests. I have been Commander-in-Chief of the South Dakota's National Guard. I have had South Dakota Guardsmen and women deployed every single day since I have been Governor. Before that, I served on the House Armed Services Committee. I know how important American strength is on the world stage. I have seen it firsthand. I have seen President Trump take decisive action time and time again. He exhibits peace through strength. He destroys our enemies, and swiftly, without hesitation. So, Seth, obviously, she's talking about President Trump there as a candidate Trump and what he would do, what she believes he would do as president. But it's also, a, I've been here, I've done this, I know this. And uh, how would you characterize her speech from a, hey, look, here's, here we are in South Dakota, this is how vibrant and uh, you know, growth-oriented we are, to, hey, I can stand next to this man and be a vice presidential candidate. Do you pick up any of that? Absolutely. And, you know, I wish at the time, you know, I was a little slow to to realize people were waving Trump gnome signs. There was so much going on and, and uh, in the arena and stuff. And eventually I did see that. And, and then, of course, Trump, you know, the event started at 530. He didn't show up till seven. And then he talked for two hours. And so by the end of the night, it was we were on all in a rush. But 
I wish if I could go back in time, I would have really honed in on who was holding those Trump gnome signs, and I would have gone up to him afterward and asked him, you know, who gave you these signs, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, to see see if that was coordinated by gnomes people or Trump's people or if somebody just did it of their own accord or it's whatever. Kind of, it's kind of like the back but, row, and somebody like turns around behind them on the bleachers, and they they pick it up, and then they start passing it uh, around. So whoever was behind the bleachers is the one that actually hands them the sign. But no, you can't see on the camera who that was. Yeah, and it was very prominent. I realized later as I was just mm -hmm. taking pictures of her speaking and him speaking, oh, in a lot of the frames, there's somebody holding a sign that says Trump Gnome, you know? <laughs> so so it was it was strategically placed. The, the one really interesting part of the speech where she really dropped a major hint that she would like to be his running right. mate was yeah. when she said, uh, you know, somebody had asked her, you know, is he going to pick you? And then she paused for dramatic effect. And then she said, you know, as the most popular and best governor or whatever, kind of yeah. making a joke out of it. But it was clearly, you know, dropping that hint that she'd like to be, uh, would accept if, if he wanted her to be uh, his running mate. And interestingly, though, then over the two hours that he spoke, he never dropped any such hints, really, other than just kind of giving her a couple of general compliments. Yes, he compliments her, says her endorsement means something. It's not a, a throwaway endorsement. It's a big deal. He clearly sees the signs because he turns around, or I guess I can't say what he saw and what he didn't see. But the signs are held up for his benefit, and he doesn't, you know, respond to them per se. So we will see what is in his head as we get further down the campaign trail regarding a vice presidential uh, running mate. Seth Tupper, SouthDakotaSearchlight.com. Seth wrote about this and did put those pictures up on that website as well. So, yeah, go ahead. Some of the crowd, even, you can there find are, on our website. There are, <laughs> there are crowd photos by Seth Tupper. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Let's take a moment now for the history of a relic. Meg Warder is the CEO of the 1880 train. That's the historic train that runs from Hill City to Keystone and back. Meg sat down with SDPB's Larry Rohr to talk about how the train came under the stewardship of the Warder family. She also shared how the South Dakota Railroad Museum next door in Hill City got its start. It all begins with her father and the view from his law office. He loved history and he was a voracious reader. So he had a real appreciation for history. Uh, in 1990, my father was a lawyer and he had a law office across the street from the train and thought, boy, that place really needs cleaned up. And there was dilapidated equipment and old buildings that were falling down and you know the trains didn't run on time and it was all a little haphazard. And so my parents decided to put in an offer and try to buy the train. From what I know, their first offer did not go through. But then a year later, just before the season was to start, the deal came together and they owned a railroad. And because of them, the train is the oldest continuously operating standard gauge train in the world. It started in 1957 and it has run continuously every year since. This train experience has been a part of your entire life. Almost. I was 15, I believe, when my yeah. parents bought the railroad and um, I've worked here every season when I was going to school during the summers and then um, came back to help full-time in 1998. 
and I've never left. <laughs> my father always believed that there needed to be a place um, for people that had railroad collections and railroad stories that were from South Dakota and there were so many people that would come forward and have stories about how the railroads affected their lives and he strongly felt that there needed to be a repository for all of these stories and collections and it went through many different evolutions and finally we just agreed to build a building and um, we got the name South Dakota State Railroad Museum. There were other communities around the state that were vying for it. Um, we just made the case that this was the perfect place. Um, it has the railroad with it. It's in the heart of the Black Hills. There's tourists so close and built the building and then the rest just kept coming forward. Meg's father, Bob Warder, passed away this past year, but the train and museum live on as a major attraction in the Black Hills and testament to Bob's love of reading and history. The Railroad Museum is featured on Dakota Live's Greetings from Hill City that has its broadcast premiere Thursday, September 14th, 8 Central, 7 Mountain, on SDPB-TV Channel 1. And you can always keep up with Dakota Life on our website, sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. More in the moment is after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The movie The Unknown Country is a South Dakota labor of love in many ways. It has several South Dakotans working behind the camera, and a large portion of it was filmed right here in the state. You'll even see some iconic local locations featured in the movie. Marissa Maltz is the filmmaker behind The Unknown Country, and she joins me from SDPB's Sue W. White Studio at Black Hill State University in Spearfish. Marissa, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a beautiful film. It is beautifully shot. It is meditative. It is a woman on a road trip and I, it has such an interesting backstory. Will you help people understand how you came to the idea of this and then we'll talk more about how the story itself developed. Sure, and um, thank you so much for the kind words about it. Um, I was road tripping um, a lot on my own while making a documentary in Oklahoma, the project I did before this in about 2015. And then um, I started coming up to South Dakota because my husband um, was working up here for a bit, and I was traveling this expanse of Texas to South Dakota for um, a number of years, and I, um, I fell in love with the landscapes um, on the road trips that I was taking and a lot of the people that I was meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and that was sort of the inspiration for the film was really traveling alone <laughs> and the landscapes and yeah. the people I was meeting. Yeah, and a woman traveling alone, which of course I have done um, myself. And there are certain things in this movie where I'm like, that just feels so real at that moment. The, the solitude and then the togetherness and then the solitude. And then the togetherness that comes from <laughs> going from one place yeah. to the other. Talk a little bit about how you merge that sort of, you know, here's a real person telling about their life, the documentary style. It's not documentary style, but um, the fiction and the nonfiction. Yeah. How, how did you figure out how to put those together into a whole? 
Well, so the the film really started with, or you know, it started with this idea of I want to tell a story about a young woman traveling alone, and then it was really the people that I was meeting that you actually see in the film. Mm -hmm. um, they tell their stories um, throughout. Lily Gladstone plays Tana. Um, she's yeah. uh, uh, and she. Uh, is an actress. She's in Killers of the Flower Moon that's coming out in October. But she meets these people that I met on my journeys throughout the film. And we just, we found a way to sort of weave their vignettes into into the road trip that she was taking by gathering audio and stories um, that they wanted to share. And we really built the film with the people, with the sort of documentary characters. Even yeah. though it's not documentary in the film, we built the story with them. And that informed how the story developed. So like right away in the movie, we see a, a waitress at a, a cafe and she says, everyone has a story. And so how did those non-actors yeah. change the direction of your narrative? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, I love the process of just, um, I guess just being open in, in life and having that influence your art. And yeah. I didn't really, know what I was, you know, what I was wanting to make. And it was like, you know, like Pam in that diner um, in Deadwood, I was going into that diner frequently. She was serving me and she just was filled with so much joy and she loved her job so much. And <laughs> she made each meal feel so welcoming and exciting. And, you know, so she really inspired the idea of putting herself in the film by just being who she was. And that's kind of what it was with each character you see in the film. Um, like Dale at the gas station, he's, um, he is a, he works in Spearfish at the gas station here that you see in the film. And, um, and same with him, like every time I would go into that gas station, he would do a little magic trick and just sort of put a <laughs> smile on your face and make you feel, you know, so they really inspired their own parts, if that makes sense, by just being who they were as people. And a real wedding, and a real, a re another real change from this person that you meet that becomes your friend, and then becomes a star of the show, and yeah. kind of changes once again, hey, have you thought about this? Tell me about that. Sure. Yeah, so Lainey Bearkiller, who is heavily featured in the film, um, along with her family, she and I met, um, uh, w summer 2016, um, I um, got my hair cut um, at cost cutters across from Walmart in Spearfish, and her friend took me out that night. Her friend cut my hair and took me out that night. We became close friends, and I was telling her about this idea. And, you know, as our friendship sort of uh, blossomed, um, she became an integral part of the story um, and sort of, like, had suggested originally the idea of possibly this young woman being a Native uh, native character that that did the drive itself, the main um, the lead in the film, yeah. and and then she um, and so that sort of snowballed, getting Lily involved, and then you know Lainey was like, I want to get married. Um, should we put that in the movie? And that's kind of how open the film was. You know, like it yeah. was really when I was saying built by the people in it. Like I was like, sure, we don't really know what it is yet. Let's see if there's a way to include it. So it kind of became this like initial like why Tana leaves. It was this invitation to this wedding. And so then we were, we threw in her, her, we planned her real wedding. And it was the first day of filming up in South Dakota was Lainey's real wedding. And it's wow. one of my favorite moments in the film. Here's what I felt, Marissa. I just want to say this before I let you go. I felt as Thank a you. viewer that I was also part of the film Aww. because of Thank the you. tenderness with which you take time in it. 
Thank you. Probably because I'm from South Dakota as well. <laughs> um, that didn't hurt, I'm sure. But I think even not every not every no, landscape you. was something I recognized and can tell you where it was. And I still felt like I was also a character in the film. I cannot think of another film that I've had that experience with. Oh my God, that just gave me goosebumps. Thank you. That was the intention truly was to try to make it an experience so that yeah. you feel like you're on this road trip versus watching someone else's story. Yes. And that you really like have, that was what I hoped you for. You got so that. I, you just gave me goosebumps. I got so. that without you, you telling me that is what I experienced. <laughs> okay, The Unknown Country, you can Thank see you. it at the State Theater in Sioux Falls, September 13th. That's today at 7 p.m. Central and September 16th at 2 p.m. Central. So it's showing this weekend. Any other places people can see it if they're not in Sioux Falls or hoping for distribution um, in the future? What's what's next for this film? It's uh, It will be playing at some point in Rapid at Elks Theater. Um, awesome. We just don't have that exact date yet, and it will be streaming soon. Okay. Um, available at home. But I encourage you to see it in a theater because yes. it is a film to experience with the sound and the you know I will go do that, that too because I watched it on a, a small screen I will go to the big screen uh, Marissa uh, Maltz uh, the unknown country is what it's called thank you so much for being here and for thank you for having sharing me. these stories with the, the world yeah thanks thank you This weekend, Love It at the Falls comes alive with Latin music and culture. The Latino Festival and Parade is happening September 17th in Sioux Falls. Freddie Flores is an El Salvadoran musician who will perform at the festival. And Ivan Bello, Blue, Ivan Ballou does marketing for the South Dakota Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And Ivan Romero is entertainment director for the Latino Festival. They are all with me here in the studio. Pull your microphones a little bit closer. We, uh, we'll get you set up just the way, and we'll start with Ivan. Tell me a little bit. First, welcome. Thank you Thank for you, being here. Tell me a little bit about why, why this festival is important to the community at large. Yeah, thank you, Larry. Thanks for having us here, first of all. The reason why our festival is important for our community is because it is the first Latino festival that celebrates all Latino cultures um, in our community. Um, and it is the first festival um, that we're holding in the month of September, which is the Hispanic Heritage Month as well. So we are very excited to bring the festival to life here at the Levitt for all of our community. Um, and we welcome everybody from not just our Latino friends, uh, but also just anybody in the community that wants to come and be a part of it um, and then enjoy the food, the culture, the music, and everything else that, we, that we'll have to offer. Give us event. an idea of the, the times and uh, what people need to do to prepare. Come stay all day? Yes, uh, we will start the event at 11 uh, with a parade. So we will have a parade starting on 8th and Dakota, and we'll finish on 6th and Phillips, and and then we'll, from... We'll, we'll turn um, on, Phillips. on Phillips, yes, and you're right. And, and finish on 6th and Phillips, and then we'll gather at the Levitt for the festival. The festival will start from 1 to 5, and 
that's when we'll start with our festivities, with music, folkloric dancing, um, and of course, a lot of food vendors that, that will be present, and we'll have uh, beverages and things like that as well for the public. All right. Freddie, we're going to do some interpretation here for Freddie, so you'll hear both languages now um, in your ears. But Freddie, what does it mean to represent El Salvador at the Latino Festival? ¿Qué es lo que significa representar El Salvador en este festival? Pues sí, eh, soy Freddy Flores para todos. Um, pues para mí es un orgullo representar a mi país por estos lugares también tan hermosos. Uh, I am Freddy Flores. I am very happy to be representing uh, my country on these places in um, culture, cultura. Yeah, así es, sí. What kind of music do you, do you perform? What kind of music? ¿Qué clase de música representas? Oh, uh, este... El pop es, es mi música este, que voy a cantar el domingo y, y es la que represento también, es el pop. Uh, Freddy representa la música pop en nuestra comunidad. En inglés. So Freddy represents pop music in our community. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My high school Spanish is yeah. coming back to me as we speak. So, but go ahead and, and, and speak to the, the Spanish-speaking listeners today. Don't worry if I can understand you. What do you want people to know about the festival? Um, go ahead and speak to the Spanish-speaking listeners now. Do you want me to speak in Spanish? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, este festival es muy importante porque aún en nuestras uh, comunidades, eh, aunque mucha gente lo trate de encontrar difícil de creer, hay hay ciertas divisiones porque es parte de nuestra cultura donde son, algunas veces hemos crecido uh, con la creencia de que solamente cierta comunidad se convierte con cierta comunidad. Entonces, aquí lo que estamos tratando de, de hacer es romper las barreras porque la unidad es muy importante, especialmente cuando somos una comunidad muy grande aquí en este estado. Y la importancia que es, esto va a traer es completamente significante. All right. A little bit in English, you're talking about unity and the size of the community in the state um, for people who don't speak Spanish to help us this, understand. What um, this event yeah. and the entire uh, meaning of it is very important for our community. Um, I especially grew up in a family where my dad taught me that Um, I was just to commute and, and congregate and have friendships with people just that were Mexicans. I'm Mexican. So that coming to this country was a very eye-opener because it's not only about that. Um, it's important to be united and support each other, especially when we are in a community so big of Latinos in this state. It's important to raise our voice to work together and help each other yeah. so we can create better opportunities for our community, that is huge. This event is not only bringing the entertaining, the entertainment, but it's also celebrating all the Latinos and know that we can all be together and make a difference in our community. So Ivan, if you're from El Salvador, and somebody says that you're Mexican because they don't know the difference, it can create a little bit of, of division or, or separation. And this is about togetherness. This is about everyone celebrating their country. 
of origin, but also the togetherness of that. We have about a minute left. Okay. What do you yeah. want to let people know before we close? Right. And so it, there is a distinction between being from El Salvador yeah. and Mexico. So people may have uh, feelings towards that. However, uh, we embrace... And this is part of the reason why we want to create this festival is because we want to embrace every culture. And then that also creates visibility and um, information for the public out there to know that this is not a just a Mexican event. It's yeah. a everybody event. Yeah, this is not a monolith. Right. These are individuals. And yet we're one as a community of, of Sioux Falls, even for people who don't uh, speak any of these languages. Come out and enjoy That's great. the and, event this and, weekend. And, we're very happy to have Freddie and everybody else that's going to be representing with different countries on the stage as well. All right. SDPB will be there. There are all kinds of fun activities for the kids, food, music. Um, Freddie, Ivan, Ivan, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks thank for having you. us, Laurie. Thank you. Thank you, too. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.